Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash picture lock. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. You're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Welcome to another episode of the world-famous, award-winning Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, filmmaker, film festival director, film critic, and lover of film and TV. You can find all the back episodes and so much more at PictureLockShow.com. The 2018 DC Black Film Festival Call for Entries is now open. Filmmakers can submit through Film Freeway. The regular deadline ends April 30th, so be sure to get your film in. Visit dcbff.org for more details. I've got a fun episode for you today. I talk with Shalise Haas of the movie Real Boy, which covers a son's transition and a mother's transformation and who we choose to have familial bonds with. I'll also talk with Desmond Jackson, the director of Funk Force, a satirical short about a team of dysfunctional black superheroes. My conversation with Desmond is cut short for radio, but make sure you subscribe to the podcast to hear the unlocked version. But speaking of superheroes, it's been 10 years and it's all led up to this as Avengers Infinity War comes out this weekend. I've got Jeffrey Lyles of Lyles Movie Files to give us a spoiler-free review of the film. And that's all ahead on Picture Lock. The entire time I knew him, he only ever had one goal. To wipe out half the universe. If he gets all the Infinity Stones, he can do it with the snap of his fingers. Just like that. Tell me his name again. Thanos. We got one advantage. He's coming to us. We have what Thanos wants. So that's what we use. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and I am excited to have my good friend Jeffrey Lows of Lows Movie Files on the line with me to talk about Avengers Infinity War. Jeff, what's up, man? Oh, man, I'm doing awesome. How's everything on your end? <laughs> I cannot complain, man. I cannot complain. So you were able to see an early preview of the film. Um, obviously, this is what we've all been waiting for for like the past 10 years, uh, and it's all led up to this. I mean, what are your initial thoughts uh, of the film? I loved it. Uh, I think I was talking to some of my buddies earlier today about it. For me, the biggest takeaway I had was just how respectful the directors, the Russo brothers, Joe and Anthony, were in terms of what's come post-Civil War. That was the last film they worked on. They, to me, kind of set the Marvel Cinematic Universe to this next high when they did uh, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. They took it to another level when they incorporated two completely new characters into um, to the universe with Civil War, Black Panther, and Spider-Man. 
and did that so seamlessly. And we have so many more characters to work with in this one. This is the first, I guess, big Marvel comic book size crossover. <laughs> right. The Avengers films have been one team that is, you know, we saw build up over the course of five films. And this one is the culmination of 18 films. And what really stood out was just how the Russo brothers took everything from those films. So the Guardians of the Galaxy scenes feel like the James Gunn versions. It doesn't feel like, well, this is just the Russos trying to figure out the, the Guardians puzzle. They, It's just like, hey, wow, this you, you believe that James Gunn directed those sequences. It, mm. it feels so authentic. Mm-hmm. When it gets to the Black Panther moments, it's like, yeah, this is Ryan Coogler's Black Panther in this movie. A lot of times you'll you'll watch these, and there's not like not a lot of comparisons, um, but you'll see these films with a lot of characters that come in from different films, and it's like, eh, okay, I mean, if you look back to the first Avengers, Josh Whedon made his version of the Avengers, and if you watch those first five mil- movies that lead up to it, it there's not a lot of elements that carry over to it it's like josh whedon's avengers and that becomes the standard of that of the comic book or marvel studios empire but it's not so much the different pieces of thor you don't feel like that it's like thor gets dropped into the avengers movie iron man's brought into this avengers movie captain america was set in the 40s so it didn't matter he's brought into this avengers movie infinity war feels like these characters and their respective movies coming into this one collective cinematic experience. And somehow uh, the Russos work in all these characters so seamlessly. There's character development. I'm saying if you have a favorite character, everybody gets at least one moment. In a lot of cases, they get more than one. So if, if you're a big Shuri fan from Black Panther, she gets some good good moments, good lines. If you are a fan of Vision or Scarlet Witch, they've got a lot of good moments. And if nice. you're a fan of the big three, like Captain America, Thor, or Iron Man, of course, they've got theirs. But it's just there. there's so many moments for all these characters. And it's just like, wow, how do they do this so well? where everybody comes in, gets a slice of the pie, and it doesn't feel like, man, I wish Rocket had better scenes and better moments. They all do. And I I can't, I mean, there's so many characters, but I cannot think of one that I felt got slighted. Um, Yeah, it's just, they they took care of everybody. And I think if if you're a fan of Guardians, you're going to feel like, good deal. The Guardians weren't, they didn't have to take a backseat to Iron Man. And Doctor Strange wasn't just there to be the magic guy. He was Doctor Strange in the world with these other characters. Nice. And I just felt they just brought everybody together so beautifully in this film. Man, that's what's up. You know, I was wondering about Scarlet Witch because I I think I've had a crush on uh, Elizabeth Olsen since Martha Marcy May Marlene in 2011. uh, Mm -hmm. Just because she separated herself from her sisters and was like, yo, I'm I'm a bona fide actress. Uh, No no shade. But... um, the fact that you said, like, even the Scarlet Scarlet Witch uh, and Vision get their own moment is is huge because typically in these films, like, they've they've kind of been like a 
more of the B story to, you know, like you said, kind of Iron Man's main story or whatever. So it's great to hear that everyone gets a moment um, and the fact that everything is seamlessly working together. I think that because we've gotten adjusted to these different stories over the past 10 years, now with like 10 years ago, if you just threw everybody in a movie, then it would have been like, whoa, this is overkill. Um, mm-hmm. But but I'm, I'm really happy to hear that. Now, one of the big things with these superhero films uh, or big issues is the villain, right? And so I have to ask how Thanos plays through, through like from initial reports that I've heard, um, he is a, a great villain, um, but I, I definitely want to get your take on that. Thanos, Marvel's had this knock of having bad villains, but I think some of that is their heroes are so charismatic and so well-defined and the movies have to spend that screen time devoting to building them up because they're the ones that have a franchise. They're the ones that have one, two, three films and those big team-up movies. So that investment on building them up is more necessary than fleshing out, let's say, uh, uh, Obadiah Stane or Justin Hammer or Whiplash. Uh, <laughs> those characters are fine as the foil, uh, but they don't really need it. I think in the last latter half of Phase Three, Marvel has quote unquote fixed their villain problem. We've seen Hela, we've seen Killmonger, we've seen Ego, and now with Thanos. And I think these, this, this last string of villains are probably the most memorable. And I don't want to forget Michael Keaton with uh, Vulture, too. So they've been really strong bad guys. And Thanos is hes a really interesting character. Uh, if you are remotely familiar with him from the comic books, they, they kind of follow his sort of noble duality of being this cruel, evil, vicious person who has this code of honor and this unique sense of ah, you deserve to die and you yeah you, you've got some spirit i'm going to keep you around <laughs> so it makes him a really complex character and the film if there is a main character it's probably thanos he has he's definitely more than half of the film is focused on him mm-hmm. but not in a way that it detracts from anyone else but we get to see more of who Thanos is. This is the same guy that we saw just for 30 seconds in the Avengers. And this is a guy who we saw in the tale, the post credits of agent Voltron. It's been like, all right, who is this guy? And this film really takes a lot of time to spend on who Thanos is, what he's about and how his end game drastically impacts the entire universe and it's only going to come down to the avengers guardians dr strange spider-man etc to stop him um you mentioned elizabeth olsen there were i mean every performance the entire cast is great marvel has done a phenomenal job of casting everyone i don't feel like there's somebody i'm like yeah they probably should cast so-and-so for this role i always feel like they did such an outstanding job on that but with the cast here, the real standouts for me were Chris Hemsworth, who uh, takes more of his Thor Ragnarok persona nice. to this version. Uh, you know, everybody loved that. So it was great to see that take on Thor make it to this big crossover. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but he's also got some really strong emotional moments where it's like, wow, this is the side of Thor we haven't really seen before. Uh, Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany, they're good because there's so many visions, Scarlet Witch scenes, Josh Brolin as Thanos is outstanding too. Um, and Zoe Saldana, who, you know, in the Guardians context, they've always kind of been kind of goofy, but her character has so much depth in this one that I think if I had to pick my two favorite performances, it would be her and Hemsworth. <laughs> and Brolin, I'm going to cheat and go with three, but they were great and those characters really stood out uh just from their performances nice but everyone's just you know in, in benedict cumberbatch we've seen one doctor strange movie and my favorite part of the movie is his interaction with thor in the post-credit scene and from his scenes in thor ragnarok this right, one's right. like i'm so glad he was involved in this because this was like yes this is the doctor strange i wanted to see (laughs) the whole mix of these guys and it's it's fun watching these characters do this so yeah well jeff man uh i am excited to go and see it i'm gonna actually see it uh last night by the time this airs um, but Thursday night. Uh, so, so again, Jeffrey K. Lyle's, uh, Lyle's Movie Files. I mean, I put the whole name in there. <laughs> but, but um, Jeff, if you could, let the audience know how they can read your reviews and also tune into your podcast. Oh, thanks, man. Um, my website is lylesmoviefiles.com, L-Y-L-E-S, moviefiles.com. You can follow me with the same info over on Twitter. And I've got a podcast. I just started rolling. Uh, We recorded episode 28 tonight. So I've talked a little bit about Avengers. Spoiler free right now because I I don't want to ruin it for anybody else. But those are the two main ways you can follow me on Facebook or give out movie tickets. So follow me there and check, you know, just check out the site. I write something every day. So uh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. My man, Jeff, Jeff Lyles from Lyles Movie Files. I really appreciate you coming on and giving us that little preview. Spoiler free. You did an excellent job of (laughs) Avengers Infinity War. All right. Good deal. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Hey, this is May Abdulbaki, founder of MoviesWithMay.com, and you're listening to Picture Lock. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and Real Boy is an intimate story of a family in transition. As 19-year-old Bennett Wallace navigates sobriety, adolescence, and the evolution of his gender identity, his mother makes her own transformation from resistance to acceptance of her trans son. Along the way, both mother and son find support in their communities, reminding us that families are not only given, but chosen. I have the producer-director of Real Boy, Shalise Haas, on the line with me. Shalise, welcome to Picture Lock. Thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So, Shalise, the first question I always start with is, when did you first fall in love with film? I think that the the love affair that I have is more with storytelling than with film in particular. Um, I love movies. I love film. But if I can trace sort of my own history of becoming a documentary filmmaker, it really goes back to a love of storytelling. Um, so I started doing plays in elementary school. Um, I loved theater. I did theater all the way through school, um, up through college. And then I spent a couple of years overseas and um, had uh, an old 
SLR film camera with me. And, um, and that sort of love of storytelling became something, the, the, the method of, of storytelling became one of, of still photography, an opportunity to ask people their stories, to get an introduction into their own lives. Um, and, then, and then my love of, of storytelling through photography evolved into radio, um, oral histories. And then when I was in my mid-30s, I went back to grad school to become a documentary filmmaker. So I think I've always loved movies, but but what I love about movies is what I love also about all of those other forms of storytelling. It's the the intimacy, the access to people's lives, um, and and the opportunity to to feel connection with with people you know, with people you relate to, or people that um, have experiences that are are really different from your own. Yeah, you know, you're not the first person that has said that, you know, you've kind of gone from um, the oral storytelling to um, kind of being behind the camera. And not only that, I think for still photography, film is nothing but moving images. So it kind of makes sense that, um, you know, from there it would just lead you into uh, film. And if you could just kind of tell us how you actually got into the industry. Sure. Um, so I was living in California um, after a number of years in Brooklyn, and um, I had been working as a still photographer. I'd been working, I worked for a while for StoryCorps, which is a, an amazing oral history project um, out of New York that has really taken the world by storm. Um, and at that point, I was actually working in nonprofits and feeling like I was ready to find a new and and more expansive way to be involved in storytelling. Um, and so I, um, I applied to grad school at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism, which has an amazing documentary film program that used to be run by John Else. Um, and to my astonishment, I, I got into to that program and, and it really taught me so much and and gave me an opportunity to learn not only the craft of of filmmaking but um the craft of of good um fact-based uh storytelling it's picture lock i'm your host kevin sampson i'm talking with producer director of real boy shalice haas shalice uh, you know i do think that it is awesome that you know you're able to kind of perfect your craft so that you could go from just loving storytelling to like I, I'm, I'm trying to find the, the actual word I, I feel like it's you're able to with documentary especially lead an audience more so mm-hmm. in some ways more so than narrative I mean narrative does lead an audience but with a documentary it's a certain way that you have to um, tell your story, bring the audience in, and allow them to be a part of it. So if we could go into Real Boy, you know, give a little summary of, of what the film is all about, which I did talk about in the intro, but what is it about to you, and then how the material came across your desk? Sure. Um, so Real Boy is, I think at its heart, a story about family um, and all the different ways that we make family. It's about it's about our given families um, and ones that we choose. And so even though on its surface, it's a film about a young transgender teenager um, and his relationship with his mom, and certainly a lot of what he's going through in his own transition is part of the film. But really it's, I think, for me, less about 
transition and certainly less about the physical aspects of transition than it is about the evolution of relationships. Um, and in the case of Real Boy, the sort of central person in the film, Bennett Wallace, um, the film covers about four years of his, um, of the sort of evolution of his relationship with his mom, who's trying to figure out how to come to terms with her child's transition, something that she's initially not very comfortable with, uh, not very happy about. But as she goes through her own transformation and her own journey towards acceptance of her of her trans kid, um, Bennett is taken under the wing of his chosen family, of the other trans men who support him and help him into young adulthood while his family of origin is figuring out how to show up. So I think, you know, as a queer woman, um, as someone who um, has, you know, trans people in my life, my partners, my friends, my colleagues, um, I come from the Bay Area and a, and a really uh, rich diversity of gender um, there. So trans issues weren't sort of novel or new to me. And um, as someone who is not, I'm not a trans person myself, I knew I wasn't telling my own story in that way. Um, but really that this was a story of chosen family, the way that we in queer communities build chosen family, but also an opportunity to tell a story in collaboration with the people who are in it. Um, knowing that it's never, you know, I, I, I have very strong feelings about in documentary film, this idea that we are um, able to ever tell a film or tell a story that's, that's purely observational, right? People often say, oh, I'm just a fly on a wall. You feel so, <laughs> you know, you don't feel like you're there at all. And, and I just don't believe that. I right. think that as filmmakers, we're always in our films, whether we, whether you hear our voices or see our faces. Um, and in this film, I think it really is about the relationships that I have with everyone in the film. Um, and and an, and an acknowledgement that this is is their story, but told through my lens because it can't be any other way. Um, but that I spent a lot of time sharing what I was doing with them, talking to them about it, and 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 hopefully, um, you know, le it was less about sort of going out and and making this feeling like I was going to tell somebody else's true story. Um, in a way that was completely objective. Uh, so, and because we've all become very close and we've built really close relationships over the years that we were making the films, the film together, I think that you see that intimacy um, on screen. You know, um, I, I totally agree with you on uh, your point about once you get behind a camera, as I always say, when you hit record, like, it doesn't matter. Like, it's coming from your perspective. You're choosing what you shoot, which angle, etc. Um, and so coming to Real Boy, right? So um, as a critic and, you know, uh, radio show host, you know, trans stories, um, it, in some ways it seems like it's an explosion in terms of like on documentaries because literally last week um, I interviewed Sam Hampton who's director of Change in the Family and it kind of covers a family as their um, you know daughters transitioning into you know their son and so um, you know what, what I'm finding fascinating is you know for Sam he was saying that it was about showing what's normal like 
that, uh, you know, it's okay to be yourself, right? And from you, what I'm hearing is that your kind of take on this story is about the, the families that, you know, we're born into and the families that we choose. Um, and so it, what, what I want to ask is, you know, why is this story important to tell for the rest of the world or for people that might not have, you know, trans friends or, or mm-hmm. um, they're not in, in, in sort of that community. But like, I guess in some ways, because I'm big on in terms of representation on the big screen, I sure. feel like, you know, you when you see yourself, like it, it gives some type of validation. But like, if you could just talk a little bit about that, does, does that make sense? Sure. What, I'm, what I'm Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I think it's an important question. Um, and I feel really grateful to have had an opportunity to talk to audiences over the last, it's been almost a couple of years now since the film was released and we've traveled all around the world. It's been 23 countries. Um, and so the conversations have really been very broad and, and the people in the film, Bennett and Joe, um, have traveled with the film a lot. So um, I think what I hear from audiences, and and you're asking specifically about those that are not themselves trans or have trans family members or are sort of close inside community, is that often people walk in with a certain degree of open-mindedness, right? Or they wouldn't be in the theater in the first place um, if they were really antagonistic towards this idea. But (laughs) but they often come in with a certain um, discomfort or, or very narrow perspective on trans identity because we get there's much much more in the media um but most of the mainstream media still tells the same stories over and over again right so people have a limited notion of what being trans is right that it's like you were born in the wrong body and you know you're going to get surgeries and hormones to fix it so it's mostly focused on bodies and changing and sort of what's weird about that and and I think that um, what I hope that Real Boy does, as well as many other films um, told by a very diverse group of filmmakers, is that when you go deep into someone's experience, when you go really deep into their lives, and it's the minutia of you know going to school, or there's a scene in Real Boy where Bennett and his best friend go off to college, and they're living in an apartment on their own for the first time, and they can't figure out how to use the pilot light and the heater. Um, and they call it old technology, right? <laughs> right. Um, or where they're talking about dating or where they're, ta- you know, where they're just goofing around with each other and, and making stupid jokes and making each other laugh or fighting, you know, Bennett fighting with his mom um, or, you know, the way he looks up to his musical hero and his mentor. Like all of that stuff is so deeply relatable for so many people across various kinds of difference and I think what people have said to me and to Bennett and Joe during those after those screenings is I just feel like I it's not that I now sympathize with these people or have you know even it's not like oh those those poor trans people and what they go through right it's actually a sense of connection and a sense of identification like I know what it feels like to fight with my mom that felt so real that felt (laughs) so much like my own experience Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that it's not just what makes you different but it's you know and I don't want to sort of say oh it's what makes us the same but I think it's what what feels like oh yeah that totally feels like something I have experienced um on on these very basic kind of mundane levels um, and also, there are things that are different, and that those differences are important, and that watching someone 
who you suddenly relate to have to navigate, you know, their family's, um, I'm not going to say rejection, but their, but their family's um, dismissal or, or questioning um, and, and the antagonism of, you know, the outside world, right? And then when you think about the broader context that we're living in, where there are people all across our country who are being denied the right to work, you know, who can be fired just for being trans, people who can't use public bathrooms, right? People who, and, and, and far worse, right? Particularly trans women of color um, are those who are most at risk of violence. The rates of murder are, are, unconscionable they're they're horrendous right Mm -hmm. and so when you think yes this you know this i feel like there's somebody i relate to and at the same time this one fact of their identity makes them vulnerable in some way um that hopefully you think about that and I, i will say it's important to mention that this film is about you know several white middle class trans men who who can walk out in the world and and be read as male for the most part and so their experiences are also very different from a lot of other trans people in the broader community um, with all of the other intersecting identities that make it a lot harder right so for trans women or older trans people certainly trans people of color trans people who don't have access to you know to economic to like surgery and um jobs and things like that so i would say it you know reading the film with with the recognition that it it is does not tell the story of trans people writ large, um, and in fact doesn't tell the you know it, it's not it's not meant to represent any one community. It really is just a story of a few people and um, in a very short period of their lives. You're listening to Picture Rock. I'm your host Kevin Sampson, and I'm talking with the produ- producer director of Real Boy, Shalise Haas. Uh, Shalise, I think you just absolutely crushed that answer, and um, I appreciate you really taking the time to kind of explain uh, the significance and importance of a film like this. Because I think, um, yeah, there's plenty of times that we can dismiss the importance of connecting to one another. And I think that, especially in our political climate right now, that um, the things that divide us, uh, unfortunately, in many ways nowadays, are the things that are championed instead of the opposite Mm -hmm. um, or the other way around. You know, unfortunately, we're going to have to kind of bring the... bring the interview to a close, but I almost feel like it was a mic drop after you just finished that answer. If you could let people know how they could uh, see the film, follow uh, you guys on social media, etc. Sure. So um, you can find out all about the film at realboymovie.com. It is available um, digitally. iTunes, Amazon Instant Video will probably be available uh, more broadly in the coming year. Um, But the best place to find us, realboymovie.com. You can find us on all the social media platforms and certainly... um, take some time to go through the website because we also have other videos of other trans musicians um, and, 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 and a, lot, a lot of resources for, um, for communities. So hopefully um, we will, the film will be more broadly available over the next year. And I'm so grateful to have had the time to talk with you. 
Yeah, it's definitely been my pleasure. Again, producer, director of Real Boy, Shalise Haas. Thanks so much for coming on Picture Lock. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Let's take a quick break for promos. Stay tuned. What's up, guys? Thank you so much for listening to and supporting Picture Lock. I absolutely love film, as you know, and have given my life to studying the medium. As a filmmaker, I understand what it takes to make a film from its inception to the big screen. As a critic, I've been able to see the business of film from the marketing side of things. And as a film festival director, I've been able to see the distribution side, but more importantly, the enormous amount of talented filmmakers out there creating and crafting stories from their heart. And that's why I've started Picture Lock PR. If you're a filmmaker or producer looking to engage audiences and create relevance around your latest or upcoming project, head over to PictureLockPR.com. We can help you with your film's publicity from pre to post-production. Get more information and see the clients we've helped in the past at PictureLockPR.com. PictureLock PR. Finally, a partner as passionate as you. Hey, everybody. I appreciate everyone that listens to the Picture Lock podcast. And for you, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. If you're like me, then it's been a while since you've sat down and read a book, but it hasn't been long since you listened to a podcast. In fact, you're listening to one right now. Why? Because you're able to be entertained, informed, or educated on the go. That's kind of how I like my books as well. With Audible.com, I can listen to Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces or Robert McKee's story when I'm in the mood for learning about the craft or Malcolm Gladwell's The Tipping Point when I'm trying to learn how to be a better influencer. The point is, a wealth of knowledge is at your fingertips. All you have to do is go to audibletrial.com slash picture lock for a free 30-day trial. It's that easy. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash picture lock for a free 30-day trial to Audible. And it goes a little something like this. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson, and Funk Force is a satirical short film that follows the mission of a dysfunctional team of young black superheroes as they tackle their most daunting foe to date, a hip-hop sensation hell-bent on hypnotizing the black community. I've got the director of said short, Desmond Jackson, on the line. Desmond, welcome to Picture Lock. Hello, how's it going, Kevin? Man, it's going pretty well, man. I'm, I'm so, I'm so looking forward to talking to you about this film. I, it just resonated with me on so many levels, especially the nerd in me. Uh, but the first question I always start out with, man, is when did you first fall in love with film? Uh, man, I think I've fallen in love with film just since childhood. Uh, since the since I was five, uh, me and my father would always go to the movie theater every weekend. Um, and just see new releases, new animated films, uh, new kid films. Um, and so he was kind of a huge film buff and a film nerd. And so he kind of transposed that onto me. And um, 
Yeah, <laughs> ever since I was five, ever since I was a kid, I've been in love with film. That's what's up. Now, um, was there a specific film that like really caught your eye? And if not, just in terms of falling in love with film, I got to know, what was that anime that you saw that you were just like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm in love with this, this art form? um man i have to think back i think the first anime i really fell in love with uh was digimon uh because that came on the saturday morning uh kids kids programming on fox new uh fox kids right uh, man i was like man i want him to digivolve into the higher level and they need to work together to conquer this uh the Venom Myotismon, man, I can still remember the names <laughs> <laughs> to this date. But yeah, that was, I think, my first anime. And like back then, I didn't even know what an anime really was. But um, I have cousins and uncles, and we've all kind of been like uh, anime nerds to a certain extent. So they've been into the culture, and they uh, brought me into it. And we would always watch like um, fight uh, fighting animes here and there. I think there was like a Street Fighter um animation done and yeah we would always just gather together and watch those kind of things but yeah uh digimon was like my first big anime and um in terms of films i'm trying to i don't remember the first film i watched that like really got me like i just fell in love with film but i think um i I was just really big into like tv shows uh as a kid um and going back to the kids programming for fox kids um power rangers i would watch on a regular basis <laughs> yeah just everything on those kids programming yeah like i really fell in love with power rangers and so that just kind of like really where it started off for me i think you know it's funny because um when i when i was watching uh funk force i automatically was like yo this is power rangers meets dragon ball meets black exploitation <laughs> Like, and, 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 and literally it was exactly what you're just talking about. It took me back to the days of like when Power Rangers would come on after school on Fox and, Mm -hmm. um, and on the, on, on the weekends. And I just used to love that show. And, uh, at one time I like, I asked my grandmother cause she could, she could knit. And I was like, can you make me a Power Rangers costume? Cause you know, back then, like they didn't really make like the, the kind of superhero, you know, kind of costumes like they do now. Like you can go get Black yeah. Panther, Captain America, Iron Man, all that stuff. No, no problem. But yeah, man. So I, I definitely, I feel you on that. And, and I am going to geek out about that a little bit later, but, uh, <laughs> Just if you could let the audience know um, how you got into the the industry. Yeah, sure. So uh, when I was in high school, um, junior year, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I was like, I'd prepare myself later. I'm going to study law. I love debating people. Um, And then strangely enough, I think um, uh, my friend told me about this acting competition. And so uh, I was just really intrigued in it. Like when she told me about it, I auditioned. Uh, just on a whim and I, I got into their competition. Um, and so from that, I was like, all right, I really want to start building up a reel and stuff. And so um, I made a video club in high school where uh, I just filmed short skits with uh, some of my high school friends. And uh, from that, I was just like, oh, man, like I really love the acting part, but I really, really love like the directing and producing and just getting all these elements together. And so after that, um, I didn't do too well in the acting competition uh, when it finally happened. But um, from there on, I was just like, I really want to study filmmaking when I go to college. And so uh, I went to Hofstra University out here in Long Island, New York. And it was um, 
I came in knowing nothing <laughs> about film and that school really taught me a lot about the basics of filmmaking, storytelling uh, structure, uh, what it's like being on set. And uh, while I was there, I produced about four short films and including Funk Force, I started uh, conceptualizing Funk Force there and uh, I filmed it as my senior thesis project and then um, took me about a couple of years to, <laughs> to finish the post-production process just because I wasn't aware of how daunting that process was. But yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Hofstra University really taught me um, everything I know now about filmmaking, really gave me the tools to kind of be successful in the industry. And so... From there, I um, I graduated, worked for Marvel Television on like Daredevil, Luke Cage, uh, Jessica Jones, and then I kind of transitioned more into an office environment. And that kind of is where I'm at currently at AMC Networks right now. So, word, you're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host Kevin Sampson. I'm talking to the director of the live action short film displaying heroes of color like no other, Funk Force, Mr. Desmond Jackson. Yeah, man, that's an awesome story, and it's really cool to see that uh, you have not only uh, followed your dreams and you're getting funk force out there, but you're also working in the industry, as I'm sure that's only going to help you more in terms of being a producer and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. So, Desmond, if you could, uh, you know, I've, I've given the, the audience kind of like what the film is about, but you got to tell me, like, how do you put this together? Because... Uh, for me, when I watched Funk Force, I felt like it was reminiscent of like Robert Townsend um, back in the day and, uh, <laughs> you know, the Hollywood shuffle in a sense. And like I said, I do think that it's, you know, kind of Power Rangers meets black exploitation. But in terms of like t speaking truth through comedy and, and, and it's a little bit like, you know, kind of over the top, but like. The truth yeah. is in the message. So I got to yeah. know, like, just like, how did you conceive this thing? <laughs> yeah, sure, man. I think um, I have to give all praises due to uh, my favorite film of all time, still Undercover Brother. Uh, stars Eddie Griffin and has Dave Chappelle, uh, a few other notable black cast members. But that film, I think, is a very underrated action comedy and people like still pass on it. And when I tell them it's my favorite film, they're just like, what? Undercover Brother? <laughs> Right. But uh, <laughs> but that film really, really um, inspired me like to not you can have comedy, but also have like a, a great social message with because there's a lot of uh, subtleties and nuances with Undercover Brother that are over the top and um, very overt, but also very covert with its message of like teamwork and like we get, all races kind of need to work together. Uh, in order to kind of like actualize their goals. And so I was really inspired by that film to uh, make Funk Force. And of course, uh, my background with just watching a ton of Power Rangers and anime, I, um, I really wanted to kind of combine all of my interests because um, I went into making Funk Force like, all right, this is going to be like, <laughs> I'm going to graduate. I don't know what's next after this, but I want to make a film that as a child, I would love to see, and like this will be the last film I ever make. And so, what do I really want to say uh, when making this? And so, yeah, that's um, that's kind of how I conceptualize it. And at the time, uh, what was it? It was uh, 2014, and I, Obama was still in term, and um, I was just I was becoming very conscious while I was at Hofstra. I had, um, just experienced a lot of covert racism while at that institution, and so. I really wanted um, to make a film that 
kind of spoke to what I was going through uh, with the utilization of the N-word um, and also just um, kind of spoke to like where we were in that Obama era. Uh, for those who haven't seen this film, film uh, big spoilers, but um, the leader dies in like the first two minutes of Funk Force. And um, through that, I kind of wanted to tell a story of how we as um, the African-American community should still be able to come together and actualize our goals and fight for social justice issues without a leader. And it's about harnessing that kind of inner strength that's in all of us. So, so yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, like I didn't even, I didn't even catch that part of it. And now that just made, that made the film even better for me. Um, <laughs> man, that dude, you're a deep thinker. Um, yeah. Undercover brother. I definitely wasn't expecting that. Um, you're making me want to, like, I have to go back and watch that now just to see, like, did I miss something here or is Desmond just like in his own, <laughs> in his own Brother, world? <laughs> let me tell you, I have seen that film probably over 20 times now, just in preparation of like writing Funk Force and just like enjoying it as a, a film altogether. And every time I watch it, I catch something new. It's, um, it's one of those films that it's like, because comedy, when you um, when you direct comedy, when you have a comedy film, I'm a strong believer that a lot uh, a lot of films nowadays they just want to use dialogue um, and have all this witty banter uh, going back and forth. But comedy should encompass all elements of the film medium. That includes sound design. That includes scoring. Uh, that includes blocking and physical comedy. Um, and I feel a lot of films nowadays uh, just don't live up to that standard. And it's kind of like Judd Apatow. <laughs> with his kind of like raunchy comedies have kind of transitioned the way a lot of um, blockbuster and Hollywood films have uh, tackled comedy. And so Undercover Brother really utilizes all those elements. Um, and so that's why I was just like, yeah, with Funk Force, I, I want to try my best to like have all these elements in there and have, be a funny film while having a social message. So yeah, Undercover Brother, man, it's uh, it's really underrated. Check it out and like, let me know what you think because... <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I am going to definitely, um, I'm definitely going to do that. Uh, you, you got me thinking right now, and I got to, I got to, I'm like trying to look this thing up real quick. Um, but <laughs> I just watched uh, a video about like how to do visual comedy. And it, I, I'm not mm. sure if this was like, um, I think it's Tony Zhao or Zoo, but he oh, looks at, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, he was like looking at um, Edgar Wright films and just showing yes. kind of like how you use cinematic language, which man, okay, first off, folks, once again, this picture lock, Kevin Sampson, I'm talking with the director of Funk Forest, uh, Desmond Jackson, and uh, I, I think after hearing you speak, I can officially say, like, this guy is somebody to watch because now I know that not only, um, you know, can you put out some great work, like, you have the mind behind it because that's one of the things that I actually wanted to get into and kind of geek out mm -hmm. on is the cinematic language of the film is spot on in terms of, like, we were talking about the, an old Power Rangers episode. So, like, you'll have a wide shot that just establishes the setting, right? So we know the spatial uh, integration of all the characters, and then the characters start running toward each other. And, like, this – and it, it's funny how, like, it's a wide shot, and because the camera is on sticks and it's fixed and it's not moving mm -hmm. and we're not – pushing into the characters it just feels so weird to see two people running towards each other and then <laughs> you like stay in with like mids and close-ups uh, but all of these different uh shots 
emphasize different things, which I thought was so awesome. And especially, folks, I got to tell you, you got to check this out. I know it's on the festival circuit right now, but um, one of the things that you do do is kind of make use of showing, you know, the gold chains or, you know, which weapon the person is using. All yeah. of that to uh, highlight, you know, with the, the villain that the Funk Force is going up against, which is like kind of like some mumblecore, you know, <laughs> rapper that like it w- w- what was hilarious is once you kind of, you know, the uh, leader kind of does this kami kami high thing, like mm-hmm. the villain starts, you know, rapping and it's like this purple, you know, hypnotic <laughs> thing that goes out to like you know, capture people's attention. But yeah. I, I know I'm geeking out, but and I'm going to get back onto this, but yeah. all of that really does build up to say something, which I, I think is really important. And that's mm-hmm. one of the skills that I see um, from you coming out of the film is that you're also making a social commentary on the state of, like, hip-hop and how, you know, honestly, like, the, the rap these days, I don't listen to because it's, like, mm-hmm. you know, four-letter words that rhyme together. <laughs> and I'm not even talking about curse words. I'm just saying, like, it's, like, you know, bubble goose rhymes. And yep. the thing that's hypnotic about it is the beat. The beat is awesome. The hook is great. And then whatever they're saying in between, even on the hook, it's, like, Okay, so <laughs> so I, I know I just said a lot, and I'm kind of just big up in the film, but um, can you talk a little bit about, like, constructing that um, and making sure that while it's an entertaining, like, fight sequence and things like that, like, you're also actually speaking to uh, the state of hip-hop and kind of waking up and being conscious, as you were talking about before. Yeah, I think, um, man... Um, that's a that's a very good question. I think when writing the film, because um, I'm a big music enthusiast and um, I love hip hop. Like my favorite rapper is um, Kanye West uh, to this day. Even though people say he's crazy, I still think he's still one of the most uh, proficient uh, music artists. That's kind of like transcendent genres, but that's not neither here nor there. But, uh, <laughs> nah, most definitely, most definitely. <laughs> uh, but um, I would say when writing it, I definitely wanted. Um, I needed I needed a tool. I needed a tool that uh, white institutions use to kind of like manipulate black people. And um, I wanted Funk Force to be up against that institution. But I also wanted um, that institution to have like someone from the black community who they were using as a tool um, to kind of like destroy the black community. And I thought um, my uh, my friend Maxim Blaine, who helped uh, kind of develop the story, he was just like, "Yeah, he needs to be a hip hop artist because then he can speak on this music um, that's been coming out recently." And I'm like, "Yeah, that's that's perfect." And so, uh, when writing the hip hop character Aldebucks, um, it um, <laughs> Aldebucks, Aldebucks, yes, um, it was um, it was funny because I got to like kind of go into like the uh the musical nerd in me and like oh man I get to finally like r- write a rap song <laughs> um and I think for me it was it was definitely speaking to like the state of hip-hop currently where it's just like there's a lot of music that um that just isn't very constructive it's um because I mean you got to think back hip-hop back in the day was used to, to like um rally against the system we had songs like f the police nowadays you don't have that's not really popularized now hip-hop has kind of been commercialized and watered down to just um 
the lowest base consumer and like people are feeding into it. People are eating it up. And um, I wanted to speak to that through the character of Aldebucks and he's being controlled um, and manipulated by his, uh, his white music executive, uh, who I like to kind of like call his owner, um, kind of like a new form of slavery of, of this white music executive utilizing uh, this black slave to kind of uh, target the black demographic. Um, and so whereas Aldebucks has a lot of power, he's still being controlled by someone who has higher power than him. So I just, um, there was a lot of layers I wanted to kind of tackle. And um, I think most of it kind of came through. I wish, um, I know some people have told me when, uh, uh, just in other talks with Aldebucks, like, oh man, like the black heroes, like uh, spoilers again for people who haven't seen the film, but the black heroes like killed the, uh, the black villain, man. It's like black on black crime. And to that, I'm like saying, yeah, that's a very valid concern. Um, but I think when someone is being, you have to, for me, like Aldebux is kind of a victim in himself too, because like he's being utilized as a tool and he doesn't even know it. So um, yeah, there's a, there's just a lot of layers I tried to, <laughs> to implement with uh, that character and like just speaking about the music industry um, as a lover of like hip hop. So. You're listening to Picture Lock. I'm your host, Kevin Sampson. I've been talking with the director of Funk Force, Desmond Jackson, kind of wrapping it up. If you could, if folks wanted to find out more about the film, follow you guys' social media, how can they do that? Yeah, sure. So uh, we have a website, funkforcefilm.com. Uh, we're on all social media channels, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, follow us at, uh, at funkforcefilm. <laughs> um, you can follow me at my website, Desmond Jackson Productions. Um, and yeah, we hope, uh, people really, um, enjoy the film when they see it in festivals and, uh, yeah, just all the support we can get, the better. Ladies and gents, when, uh, years from now I go to this podcast episode and I say, Hey, I told you guys way back then that this guy is somebody to watch. I'm saying it right now. He's somebody to watch <laughs> Desmond Jackson, director of Funk Force. Thanks for coming on Picture Lot. Thank you, man. You are killing me with kindness. I appreciate you having me. That's all for this episode. I'd like to thank my guests, Jeffrey Lyles, Shalise Haas, and Desmond Jackson for coming on the show. Be sure to catch up on back episodes and subscribe in iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Blueberry, wherever you catch your podcast. If you're a fan of Alexa skills, just say, Alexa, play Picture Lock on TuneIn, and I'll come right up. Feel free to leave a five-star review of the show as well. You can find Picture Lock on most social media. All social media is at Picture Lock Show. Watch back episodes of the TV show at youtube.com slash Picture Lock Show and subscribe to it to get some incredible value and see interviews with filmmakers and the like. I've been talking about doing this for a minute and I finally got my home studio set up and I'm going to be cranking out new reviews. I've already put up a couple of my reviews from the 2018 Tribeca Film Festival, so please head over to YouTube, youtube.com slash pitchlockshow, hit that subscribe button, and get ready to be entertained. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can fill out the form on the website. Did this episode resonate with you? What's your favorite Pitchlock episode so far this year? Are you as pumped as I am to see Infinity War? These are the questions I need answers to, so send me an email and let me know at picturelockshow at gmail.com. All music is done by Mike S. The Prophet 13. Thanks, bro. I'm Kevin Sampson, and until next time, I hope you stay locked on film.